And no one from the Brazilian office interviewed me for my internship. So they didn't know what they were getting when I came down. So they just kind of opened up their doors. This black kid comes in and I go to my, my, my boss Sergio's office the first day I'm there. And I go in and he's like, Hey, Omar, nice to meet you in English. And then he says, do you speak Portuguese? I said, well, no, I start going into the whole spiel. He's like, no, look, stop. He's like, go to your, go back to your cubicle. I can't use you until you speak Portuguese. So come back to see me in three months when you speak Portuguese or else, you know, you can go home wow. basically. Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements. We create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out of the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Mr. Omar L. Harris. He is the founder of Intenco Sultan and Taipold.io. Prior to that, he has 20 plus years of global pharmaceutical exec experience working for companies such as JSK, Pfizer, Merrick, Shrink, and Plow, just to name a few. He has worked on four continents in the US, Middle East, Asia, Latin America, and we delve into how those different cultures have helped shape his leadership experience, his work and his perspective. He's also an author of five books, including his latest one, Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss, The Seventh Leadership Manifesto, and The Leaderboard. He is a Gallup's Certified Strength Coach. He is a speaker. He is a high performance and exec coach as well. As you can say, he's a very impressive CV. We unpack that in this episode, but as always, we go right to the beginning of how we got into pharmaceuticals in the first place. That's what you did from what, college? Yeah, from like 1998. I got my first uh, internship when I was still in school with Pfizer as a sales rep in Detroit, Michigan. And I did that for eight months. And really, once I had dipped my toe into pharmaceuticals, I you know really realized how important the work was and was kind of hooked on the business. And so, so then I kind of did another internship with Pfizer in Sao Paulo, Brazil for 16 months in international marketing. And uh, when I graduated with my MBA, I joined Sharing Plow, another pharma company, at 25, and, and basically my career took off from there. Were you very intentional about not going down the typical route, especially in Michigan? Well, I wasn't. I was going to school in uh, at a HBCU, Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, and part of 
the program that I was in was to go on internships while you were still uh, in school. So rather than you finish your four-year degree, go work for two or three years and get your MBA, the MBA is integrated with these two or three internship experiences. So you basically spend a bit longer in school, but you graduate earlier with an MBA already and work experience. So I never lived, I mean, that was my first time even being in Michigan was working in Detroit for those eight months. And first time being on my own in my life, also working in Detroit for those eight months, I was 21 years old at the time and doing a, a job as serious as a pharmaceutical sales rep, which is, you know, you get all the perks, you have the car, you have the expense account, you know, at the time, the rules are a little bit different in terms of what you could do in terms of engaging doctors. But at the end of the day, what I learned was that what you communicate to these doctors has life and death consequences. And so that's that really was the beginning of my understanding of, you know, the importance of communication, honesty, transparency, and all these things. And also kind of the beginning of me thinking about what could healthcare actually be versus what it was and what it is today. And I think that friction led me to actually the point where I'm at right now. So what did you do around that time to, I guess, separate yourself from the core? Because the principles and the skills and the qualities you're just describing right now are very different from what you think about a typical sales rep. Yeah, well, my district manager at the time, he said, he said, Omar, you're not really a salesperson. <laughs> he said, can I ask too many questions? I was like too curious. I was basically trying to understand, you know, the mindset of my doctors too much. He was like, man, just, you know, you need to be in marketing. So, you know, you're a great rep. And I, I did well as a rep, but he said, the way your brain works, you need to be in marketing or market research. You asked too many questions. So he encouraged me to get into marketing, the pharmaceutical marketing. So in my second internship, when I went to Sao Paulo, Brazil, that's really where I, I got into the marketing side of pharmaceuticals. And that's where my career kind of went into that direction was, was marketing and then later on operations. Wow. What was it like in, um, in Brazil? As a 23-year-old, it was fantastic. It was great. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I think I do a lot of talks about self-awareness, and one of the things about self-awareness is there's a zone of yourself. If you think about a two-by-two two quadrant, right? You think about what's known to yourself and what's known to others, what's known to others but not known to yourself, kind of the blind spot zone. Then you have what's unknown to others and unknown to yourself. You only get to know this box by throwing yourself into different situations. And I learned a lot about myself, throwing myself into a foreign country, not speaking the language, a foreign work environment, having to learn the language, having to connect with people who were different than myself, learning a new culture, adopting and adapting to that culture, and still trying to have professional success in that environment. So really, that was a transformative 16 months for me, for sure. Did you have the language, what you describe right now as the Jahara's window? Yeah, did you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have the language at that point in time? So Pfizer told me that I was going to be working in market research, working with numbers, and that I didn't need to know Portuguese to do that job down there. They also told me that everybody in the office spoke English. So, and no one from the Brazilian office interviewed me for my internship. So they didn't know what they were getting when I came down. So they just kind of opened up their doors. This black kid comes in and I go to my, my, my boss Sergio's office the first day I'm there. And I go in and he's like, Hey, Omar, nice to meet you in English. And then he says, do you speak Portuguese? I said, well, no. I started going in the whole spiel. He's like, no, look, stop. He's like, go to your, go back to your cubicle. I can't use you until you speak Portuguese. So come back to see me in three months when you speak Portuguese or else, you know, you can go home. Wow. Basically. That was my first impression with my new boss. 
So not talk about a bad first impression. This was this was the worst. So I went back to my cubicle. I, you know, was very depressed. I wanted to call my mom. I wanted to go home. On my way home that night, I got a, I ended up purchasing a English to Portuguese dictionary and I spent the next two months translating from A to Z every word of the dictionary and memorizing it. And so in three months, I was writing, reading, communicating. And then I got a private teacher three months later and I was off to the races in terms of the language. But yeah, I kind of taught myself the language. Wow. That's absolutely amazing because. So when it comes to me in languages, personally, I'm like, nah, that's a whole different level. At that age, you can. Yeah, but I guess it's it's a mindset thing, though, isn't it? Because of most course. people have the fixed mindsets like, wow, this is tough. This is difficult. This is not what I was told is going to be the job was going to be. So I can just go back home. But you've been in that situation. Like, actually, I'm going to rise to the challenge and do something about it. Well, once again, you don't, the unknown, unknown, like you don't know what you're made of. Like someone says, you know, everybody thinks they're tough till they get punched in the face. Like, you don't know who you are. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people run away, some people step up, some people, you know, tap out, some people try to become diplomats. You don't know who you're going to be until you're tested. And I, you know, learned about myself that I'm I'm very resilient. I'm not someone who gives up easily. And I'm also someone who can figure out on my own how to navigate a situation like that with no support. So very resourceful. So these are things that I learned about myself in that circumstance, which were very, have been very helpful things to know about myself as I've gone through my, my life. Because I've been in different situations. I've lived in Turkey for two and a half years and had to deal with that matriculation. Indonesia for three and a half years. So very, very different cultural contexts and having to find a way to not only survive, but to thrive. And taking Indonesia as an, as an example, I mean, that, what, yeah. 120 backgrounds? I know there's a lot of different yeah, dialects, yeah, different yeah. cultural hierarchies all over the yeah. place. Yeah, and Indonesia is a, it's not one country. The, fir- the first thing people you need to know about Indonesia, it's not one country. It is an alliance of peoples who've decided to work together, come together under the banner of Indonesia, but there's like 719 different tribes, 319 different dialects, 18,000 islands. It is a case study in collaboration. I think the nation is, you know, and it's a very young nation. I mean, they've only been a country since 1946. So, you know, and they went through terrible, terrible things with the Japanese during World War II. They were occupied and kind of, you know, territory of the Dutch for, for, for most of their history. So you have this colonial, like, you know, mindset as well. It's a very, very interesting, interesting country to spend time in. So you stepping into a country situation like that, I found really interesting as we're talking about creating inclusive cultures that have psychological safety in in a space like that. So from your experience, how did you manage to... I guess, look after such a large scale of people in a diverse country that's not even your homeland. I think it just come down to your, your principles, right? If you're going to, if you're people first and people oriented, then it comes natural to you versus if you were just all about the business. And I think that for me, business is people. So it's not, it's never, it's never been difficult to me to connect, understand, you know, I'll give you an example. So one of the first things I did when I came in as general manager in Indonesia was to set up these breakfast and lunch chats. So basically anybody who wanted to meet me as a general manager, we could have breakfast and lunch together. I would pay and we would just, I would get to know the different people in my office. Now, the only issue with this practice was only people who spoke English well enough signed up. So unfortunately it limited me to a certain segment of my population, but it gave me an idea 
And this is all levels of the organization. It could be the janitor. It didn't matter who it was. My calendar was open for breakfast and lunch every day uh, for people to sit down and let's talk and let's get to know each other. And I soon learned that the average commute time for my employees coming into work was about two and a half hours every day, spending in a car. Two and a half to three hours was the commute time for employees coming into work in Jakarta. So within one month, I had implemented a flexi work policy, which basically said, you know, and work from home at the time back in 2018. Because I said, listen, you know, you're, you're far more productive working from wherever you are than spending three hours in a car every day. So one day a week, you can stay home and then basically flexi working hours. So we go seven to three, eight to four, nine to five, 10 to six. So you do, you create the schedule that works for you and no one's going to be all over you about not showing up at, you know, 8 a.m. anymore. And so this flexibility came as a result of me listening to people and letting their voices be included so that I could basically do something positive for everyone in my organization. Oh, I love, I love that example, actually. And I guess when you created that policy, which was brand new to them, what was the initial reaction like to that? Well, so a couple of things. So when I first got there, people used to stay in the office till like nine o'clock at night to wait for the traffic to get dry, die down. Or the previous general manager was a workaholic. So they would basically wait until she left and then they would leave. And so the, another thing that I did was, because I had heard that story before coming in, I said, listen, I'm leaving the office at 530 every day. So I give you permission to leave to go home as well. So just because I leave at 530 doesn't mean I'm not going to get back online at like eight, but I'm leaving the office. I'm getting up and physically leaving the office at 5.30 every day, no matter what's going on. And I think that that also helped give people the space and the time to kind of think about it. But initially, there was resistance. I mean, department heads, you know, didn't want to implement the policy because they were like, well, you know, I know you want to do this, but I, I need my workers here every day. And I had to work with the managers and say, listen, this is not negotiable. <laughs> this is... And you will see over time, let's give it a three-month trial. If you're still complaining about this three months later, we can look at it again. But at least let's try this for three months. And the first month was hard. Second month got easier. And by the third month, everybody was settled into the new routine. So you just have to get people to buy in, give them a time period. So listen, this may not be permanent. I'm listening to you too. I understand your concerns, but let's just try this out. And I think when you say, let's try this out, and let's kind of take it stage by stage. People are much more willing to embark on change initiatives with you than by saying, we're going to make this gigantic new transformation and we're going to do it by tomorrow. And then, and there's no bridge back. That's harder for people to kind of uh, reconcile. I love that example because you mentioned the, the troubles that happens when you're trying to change something brand new. And I've talked about a lot of times when I was leading organizations and I came in like, this is a great idea. This is going to help other people. And I was met with so much resistance because even though it was a great idea for them, what's, what's this about? We're not used to doing things a certain way. So I had to learn to work with them. And over time, it got better. And so many leaders come in with bright ideas, not recognizing the fact that actually, whether it's good or not, you're dealing with people who are complex. And therefore, there's a change that needs to happen with them to get that going. And the status quo is powerful. Like doing things where we've always done it. I mean, as, as, as human beings, we don't like change. We abhor, even though our lives are dynamic and everything is so dynamic and becoming much more so in the second decade of the, of the 2000s, people don't like change. And so you have to understand that fundamentally from a leadership perspective and know that there's a change journey that you have to go on with people to help them adopt and help them adapt. And, and it's your responsibility. It is your responsibility 
Don't complain about it. Oh, the people that know it's, it's your job. You're the one who initiated the change. So you have to see it through all the way. It's your job to see it through all the way. See, it's three major keys when you start in a new organization. Take the time to listen. <laughs> yes. Really listen. Yes. Work with your people. Listen to what's going on on the ground. And then you take changes. Then you take actions. Then you move with what's going on. What will be your, I guess, one more piece of advice you give someone who is going into a brand new organization? Take the time to build trust. I think there's, it's fundamental. Don't assume that people trust you just because you're given a title, especially the higher level up in the organization. Remember, these are not democracies. Like, you're not voted in. It's that people didn't select you and get to know you over the course of eight or nine months or two years. You just show up, and you're supposed to be the leader, and everybody has to accept that. So basically, like, you know, title will only get you so far. If you really want to be influential and you really want to make things happen, you have to build trust, and you build trust by connecting with people. So there's a there's an equation, the trust equation. I don't know if you've seen this. Trust equation is credibility plus reliability plus professional intimacy divided by self-orientation. So you have to be credible. You have to be good in your job. You have to be reliable, so consistent. It's someone people can count on. You have to build professional bonds. You have to get to know people on an individual level beyond just their role. And then you have to be less lower self-oriented, more about the organization, more about the people than you are about yourself. Because you can still blow that whole top line up by being egotistical. You can be great at the top and be egotistical at the bottom and you blow the whole trust up. So you have to do all four things simultaneously all the time. That's how you build and maintain trust. A very simple way for listeners to think about constructing and maintaining trust and how why it's so easy to lose trust because of all these four levers like you become egotistical one day then you burn a bridge over here uh, you go into a new role or you have a new tra- new challenge your credibility goes down so your trust goes down your reliability may go down because you don't know what you're doing in that situation so your reliability goes down but if your professional intimacy stays strong you have at least one pillar to build off of and if your self-orientation is hot low you have two pillars so you have to think about these as pillars of trust where you're strong, where you're weak. And so you know when you go into a new mission or something you've never done before, you're going to take it, your trust is going to take a hit. But if you're holding up on two different pillars, you still can maintain. If you're losing across all four, then you're probably going to lose the game. Obviously, you do a lot of work with Gallup and StrengthsFinder. What's your take on working on your weaknesses? So I believe that weaknesses have to be mitigated and not developed. So mitigated means you have to be, once again, it's the Jahari window. You have to know about the weaknesses. You have to have a high acuity towards them and understand them. But you don't develop weaknesses. You have to manage weaknesses. And basically that means self-awareness. So emotional intelligence, self-awareness will allow you to manage your weaknesses. And the thing that's most interesting from the strength finder perspective and the Gallup's perspective is that your top most dominant areas of talent are also the flip side of those is your most dominant areas of weakness. So strength and weakness are two two sides of the same coin. So the same thing that makes you great makes you weak. If not calibrated correctly, it's called balconies and basements in the strengths uh, language. So your balcony state is when your talent and strength is operating at optimal and the basement state is when that same exact talent is operating at its minimum. I'll give you an example. So my number one strength is ideation. 
So basically, that means the ability to connect the dots between seemingly disparate phenomenon and, and come up with something brand new out of these connections. Now, the downside of that is basically you just ideate all day and you don't do anything. You don't get anything done. You're just someone that's good at ideas, but not good at implementation, right? So I have to make sure that the ideas that I come up with are implementable. That's me in my balcony state, not in my basement state, not ideas for ideas sake. And every single one of the top 34 talents has a balcony and basement state. And one of the things I teach in my, in my coaching sessions is what are these states? How do you manage them better? And how do you make sure you stay on this side versus this side? Wow. I'm trying to see a link actually between that and like polarities where you can have the, the top side and the over-indexing side. So when you overuse a particular strength, for example, then it can turn into a negative. Or if you use it the right way, then you get positive. So that's how you kind of get that balance going all the way between. It's a calibration. I mean, you know, it's the hammer and nail, right? So once it's, it's about mastery. So the mastery is always about less energy, same result, right? So uh, I have a friend of mine who studies Kempo, and he's been doing this for the last 20 years. And, and, you know, we had a conversation about black belts. Apparently in Kempo, there's like 10 degrees of black belts. And he was like a first degree black belt. And I'm like, what's the difference between a first degree black belt and a 10th degree black belt? And he was like, well, okay, a first degree black belt can disable you by punching you in your throat. And they know exactly where to hit you to disable you with one punch. A 10th degree black belt will do the same thing by touching you on the same area you punched as a first degree black belt. And you'll still go down. Less energy same result. So strengths mastery is about less, not more. The less doing less and getting the same result or more results as, as you could before. So once you identify your strengths, aim and claim them, then you can ultimately begin to work towards strengths mastery. And and that's where it really gets fun. reading through your bio I was really really intrigued by was obviously you were the vice president at Allergen in Brazil yes sir you being a young black man in an organization like that navigating to a very senior position is not easy how did you how did you do that network I mean so basically someone who it was very very funny I've been in Brazil three times in my career three very different stages so I went as an intern when I was 23 I went back to Brazil at the age of 29 as a business unit director for two years. And during that time, a gentleman interviewed me for my first general manager position in the Ukraine, actually. And I didn't get that job. And I'm really happy I didn't get that job. I don't know if I would have succeeded in the Ukraine as a black general manager. (laughs) But this person kept me on their talent radar for 10 years and were watching my career and then 10 years, and then basically a few years later, eight years after I had interviewed with them for a job for another company, they were at another, another company and sent me an email on LinkedIn like, Hey, would you consider, you know, working for Allergan in a country like Brazil? And I was like, say less. Let me get on board. <laughs> and so went through the process and uh, got the job and, and, and changed companies and, and moved from Indonesia to Sao Paulo for eight the third years. time. Yeah. Wow. I've heard of like long networks, but that's the, that's the longest I've ever heard. Like eight years. Wow. Yeah. But I think it's no different. I mean, I think if you think about, if you just to use a sports analogy, right? If you think about how sports franchises look at talent and they look young and they may, t- and they're always looking at people and where they are in the matriculation and their development so they can make a move at any given time. I think that 
you know, if you think about LinkedIn or your, your professional networks as a resource, a living resource, and you think about people you mentored, you think about people that you've coached, these are potential collaborators in the future if you ever get an opp- the right opportunity. So you keep tabs on these people and watch their successes and then you see if, if things line up, you can make things happen. I think this individual happened to be just a great talent scout and was always looking for people who, who over time were, were, were growing and doing good things. And so he had seen that I'd gone to Turkey. I had spent two and a half years there. And then, well, he saw that I was, I was a general manager in a country as interesting and difficult as Indonesia. So I think that he was like, well, I mean, I think this guy can do this job in Brazil and in one of our major, our top five markets in the world. And, and I got that opportunity and it was fantastic. That's absolutely amazing. And after yeah. Brazil, you, you came back to the U.S. Yes, sir. So basically, Allergan was bought by a company called AbbVie in 2019. The deal closed in 2020, right around in July of 2020. And I basically packaged out and came back home to the U.S. I've been gone for eight years. When I came back to the U.S., smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic and social justice protest and the most important election in American history. So it was just a crazy time to come back to the U.S. last year. Yeah, I guess that sparked the your book, Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss. And before we even go into that, that Jedi Leader bit, I want to go into the boss bit first. Yes, yes. Why is it so important to have a distinction between being a boss and being a leader? Well, I mean, in my own personal professional experience, I have seen, if you think about this employee engagement question, the employee disengagement question, right? And I've been thinking about this and studying this question for for 20 years because I really believe that, you know, if you put your employees in the right space, you will get the productivity, you will get the engagement, and you will get the results you're looking for. So that's always been a high priority for me, employee engagement. And when I saw like these ratings of employee engagement being so low globally, I'm like, this is a crisis. And what's, what's causing this? What possibly could be causing this? And then I start researching even further. I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's managers and leaders. And why is it managers and leaders? Well, it's because they're of the boss archetype and not of a leadership archetype. So, so then I kind of centered in and honed it on, you know, you know, this is, this is the problem. The problem is not the people. The problem is pursuing an archetype of management that is archaic and outdated. So to be a boss is to be self-oriented, is to be, remember, like the bottom of the trust equation, it's to have high self-orientation, high ego, high ambition at all costs, maybe high greed. That's what it means to be a boss, right? Which flies counter to everything you learn in building trust and positive psychology, which is to be humble, to be empathetic, to be vulnerable, to be authentic. So basically these two things can exist in the same space. You cannot be a boss and be a leader. Basically, you can't do both. And so I draw a line in the sand and say, basically, we need less bosses and a lot more leaders. Because the problem that we're seeing today with the Great Resignation, this turnover tsunami, is directly related to the toxicity that comes from people pursuing Boston. And through the no fault of their own, this is the example they've been given. This is what they've seen. This is what they aspire towards. But it's the wrong aspiration. And it's turning everybody off in the system. And especially Gen Z and then now Gen Alpha coming after them. It's a wrap. They don't have any tolerance for these behaviors. They've been coddled they've been molded in a different way 
than our generation was and definitely our parents' generation was. And the millennials are kind of in the middle of it, the transition phase. But yeah, it's not going to fly. Well, you still have cultures, organizations where bossdom is rewarded. That's still the model that's available to you. So how do people start to make that shift where sometimes the leaders at the top are not making that shift? Well, bossdom is not actually rewarded. Results are rewarded, however you achieve them. So I just choose to achieve results through servant leadership. You may choose to achieve results through Boston. I guarantee when you compare our organizations, my employee engagement rates are going to be plus 20, plus 30 to yours. And I'm going to develop more people, more senior leaders, and, 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 and. So you have a numerical result. I have seven or eight results underneath me. And over time, if you really look at what one person is doing versus the other, there's no comparison. One of the things you also picked up in your book was, speaking about bosses, was where the definition of that word even even came from. Yeah, I yeah, gonna, yeah. I must have been, I was, that was new to me. I was surprised. I was like, what? I didn't even recognize that. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, the word boss comes from the root base, or I don't know if I'm even pronouncing it right, base or base in Dutch, which means master. And so this is another way of subjugating people. So how would you feel if the term boss was master? Would you use it as prolifically? Would you uh, want to be someone else's master? Think about the supremacy that comes with that term. So, so it's very clever, but it's very insidious. We have to be very careful. So just from a purely, you know, we talk about cancel culture. If we want to cancel anything, cancel bossing. Cancel the word boss. Take it out of our lexicon. Take it out of society. That's a word that should be canceled. It's a, it's a path that should not be pursued because it's, it's, it's leading, it's leading to diminishing returns nowadays. So Jedi leadership, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I was definitely interested in having that, that justice first, because personally, I was thinking if you have inclusion and equity, naturally the flow off will be justice. But you actually turn down the head and you're like, no, justice comes first. They're discrete areas. You can have equity and not have justice. Uh, you can have diversity and not have equity or justice. And you can have inclusion and not have diversity and not have equity and not have justice. So once again, there are four discrete areas of the work that we have to do in organizations to right the ship, right the wrongs, and then move things in the right way. Because justice is all about righting wrongs, right? It's about dismantling these systemic barriers or the unfairness, the advantages, some of the advantages that we've seen, the unfairness that exists within certain processes and in certain organizations and certain policies. Equity deals with not just leveling the playing field. Equity is not about leveling the playing field. Equity is about eliminating privilege. So, or passing on privileges to more groups. So equity is basically the privilege that this group enjoys. Let's give that to everybody. So then everybody feels the same way about the opportunities. It's about the feeling of opportunity, not just the existence of opportunity. So like I say, if I tell you everybody in America can be president of the United States, Barack Obama demonstrated this. If you're an American born citizen, you can become president of the United States. But if you are born a white straight male, the likelihood of you achieving that is much better due to privilege. 
inherent in society towards that particular identity. And so it's not about equality, it's about equity. That means that if you want a wider candidate pool for presidents in the future, which they actually don't want, but if you wanted it, you'd have to do a lot more work in the system to make sure that education was more equitable and opportunities for family families were equitable and all these other things uh, would have to be reconciled along the way to create the same opportunities. So when I look at the Jedi leadership, so justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and then I, then I compare it to what I put on LinkedIn yesterday, the business roundtable statement, which was basically a statement that was supporting those four pillars, which is companies shouldn't serve only their shareholders, which should serve their customers, they invest in their employees, deal with suppliers fairly, all that kind of stuff. But two years down the line, yes, we've had a pandemic, but nothing's really changed, nothing's really moved. How do we start to really have Jedi-like leaders who are really intentional about creating those kind of organizations when they can make a statement that big to the whole world and do nothing about it, and yet there's no one holding them accountable. That's the reason why I wrote the book. And there are organizations holding them accountable. So I'll I'll, I'll address both sides of that. So when I learned about the Business Roundtable statement and I saw what was happening with social justice and and the way that for the first time in my life, large enterprises were leaning into these unheard of spaces and making large public statements and money grants. And I was like, okay, we're in a, we're having a moment where this is a moment right here. How do we sustain this moment and make it not just a zeitgeist moment, but actually something really real? Well, the thing that they didn't say in the business roundtable forum was how they were going to do it. And for me, the more I researched about Jedi principles and learned about the J, the E, the D, the I, I was like, well, this is the how. You can't achieve this without this. So I wanted to write the book to connect them together, to say, like, a lot of EDI books are just EDI as a moral imperative, right? It's it's do this because it's the right thing to do. My take on it is, of course, we all know it's the right thing to do, but do it because you said you were going to do it, first of all. <laughs> my take is... My take is my take is do it because you said you were going to do it. Here's how you should do it. And here's how you should think about it. Uh, and I give the entire, basically, uh, the book is chock full of the how, to how to implement this. And so it's, it's a very valuable book to any, anybody who wants to start thinking about how to go from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Because remember, we're talking about employees first then customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. So each of these, the Jedi works in each of those pillars. There is, There are Jedi issues with employees, Jedi issues with customers, Jedi issues with the community, Jedi issues with the environment. And shareholders need to be Jedi stewards. So basically, je- shareholders should be our Jedi leaders and our Jedi compasses, where the money, so where the money should flow. The money should be flowing into companies that are actually doing the stuff. Not towards companies who look good on paper, but are going to fall apart like a, a house of cards two or three years from now when you find out the latest scandal or whatever it is. They were actually weren't doing what they said they were doing. Now, in terms of holding them accountable, we have the business roundtable. We have uh, Just Capital, an organization which is uh, a nonprofit of capitalists dedicated to stakeholder capitalism, which has a ranking of companies based on the stakeholder capitalism metrics. So you can go there and track. Every, you know, a top 100 companies list that come out every year based on issues ranked by an 110,000 person survey they do every year. 
to basically uh, align on what the issues that the American public believes are, public believes in, versus stakeholder capitalism issues, a ranking, and therefore how different companies are performing versus that ranking on an annual annual basis. You have PolicyLink, which is another organization which is tracking the, the racial equity progress of a lot of these organizations. You have the B Corp, B Lab organization, which is basically certifying companies who want to really, really, really demonstrate that they're trying to make the transition, become a certified B Corp. That will demonstrate not only your intention, but put everything in alignment to get that certification, which demonstrates to everybody uh, internally and externally your, your serious intention. So companies like Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia are certified B Corps. Natura, Dead On US are certified B Corps. So some big corporations as well. So there are organizations who are around trying to kind of hold these leaders accountable to the statements they made. You can't really walk back from that statement. 200 CEOs signed it, you know? So now it's about how are you going to do it? And so I want to be part of the solution, which is why I wrote the book. Yeah, and I definitely co-sign that. It's great book, lots of great action that you can take and apply. But there's one thing that I really wanted to pick up on was to get them to even read the book, get them to take the actions. You need that individual to be really committed to doing that in the first place. So how do you deal with leaders who say, actually, I'm doing great. Like, I've, I've rolled the pandemic and my organization is thriving. We're making lots of money. No one's complaining. Why would I really want to change anything? 11.5 million Americans left the workforce voluntarily between May and June of this year. 11.5 million people said, I'm out. That's the tip of the iceberg. If you're not watching trends and paying attention to what's going on, I mean, Starbucks is closing during the week because they don't have enough employees. This is this is going to catch up with you sooner rather than later. So no business model is insulated from this great resignation trend because there are a lot of ways. I tell people that there are a lot of ways to make $70,000 today. A lot of ways. More ways than ever in the history of the world. To make a livable a living and to, and to be comfortable, and so people have choices now they didn't have before, and how they spend their time and how they make their income. And if I'm going to choose to work with you, senior leader, you have to show me that you are authentic and you are consistent and you are working on these issues that are important to me as an employee. You have to make sure that you know you see me, my unique challenges, my unique issues towards opportunities. Uh, capitalize on my diversity and make me feel and believe that I belong in your space. Not just having, you know, bring your dog to work day, nap pods, you know, a catered lunch at, you know, whatever. These things don't mean anything. They don't matter at all. They don't actually move the needle. And the other reason what I'm using as my lever is I come at it from a different direction. If once again, if the moral imperative doesn't get you, if you're not moved to action due to your conscience, this is fundamentally business risk. So here's some sobering statistics. $64 billion comes out of the economy every year because of lawsuits, because of dis- 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 due to discrimination lawsuits and things of this nature. Companies who have senior leaders who are known as bad actors, who get me too or whatever it is, have lost $4 billion in the last three years as well. So this is emerging business risk. 
And we as senior leaders are paid to drive the top line, the bottom line, but also to manage risk. And so part of that pillar of managing risk is we have to quantify and understand the impact and likelihood that these issues related to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion will occur and how do we actually tackle them. And so once again, if the moral imperative and the conscious imperative doesn't work, then the business risk imperative should get you. Yeah. That reputational risk is massive in this day and age that we yeah. have. Yeah. More reputational, actual bottom line numbers. I mean, if you can't, I mean, everyone, everything says that diverse organizations lead to more innovation. So therefore, if you're not diverse, your business risk is lack of innovation. How much is that going to cost you in the competitive landscape? Not just reputationally, but being able to compete. You, you can't compete. If one employer is more equitable than you are, then you're going to lose talent. You know, the talent drain. That's a business risk. If you don't have talent, you can't be productive. You don't have productivity. If you are on the wrong side of social justice issues internally or externally and people's engagement goes down, then you can lose them. They can opt out of the system as well. And that basically will, that takes away your productivity, business risk. The things that drive an organization are people at the end of the day. And if you don't have them aligned and ready to go, there you go. There you have it. That's the reason why you need to do something about it. <laughs> and once again, last but not least, the the real reason why the business roundtable got together was not altruism. This was changing the scorecard for shareholders. So it's much easier to rate me and denigrate me as a CEO on one number, which is share performance, than on five. So it makes my job easier. It makes me safe. Now you have to rate me on five, but I still have to do the work. That's why shareholders have to hold shareholders are the most important piece because they have to hold these people accountable for what they said. They have to hold them accountable with their money. So if you're not moving two years after the pen, two years after you made that statement, my money is going to shift towards places where things are moving. And just capital tells me exactly where those things are happening. I know who I can invest in, who's actually making these things happen. And I know who's not. And so, once again, if you look at the fundamentals of investing, if this gets added to the equation, then money, money, actual investment is going to come out of your system. And therefore, the lifeblood of your operation is going to go down. And you're going to have difficulty maintaining your license to operate. How do you define leadership? I used to define leadership the way John C. Maxwell defines leadership, which is leadership is influence. But I actually, over time, have had to augment that definition. So I think leadership today is positive intention, positive action, and positive outcomes. Your intention matters. What were you trying to do? What did you actually do? And what was the outcome? So the leadership without the outcome, where did you lead me to? You know, so once again, like I can influence anybody. I can be a leader and influence. But what that, that, did I lead you to jump off a cliff? Or did I lead you to more prosperity for yourself? So by saying, you know, positive intention, positive action, and positive outcomes, it's just a more, you know, I think, round way of thinking about what, what a leader is today. You lost your mom last year, and I was reading about her, and like, she's an absolutely incredible incredible woman. So what was the, the key lessons that you learned from her that have made such a massive difference in your life and the way that you lead? 
I think, so first of all, my mother did not have a, uh, an easy life, the early part of her life. Her first, let's say the first 25 years of my mom's life were terrible, were tragic, actually. But she still, uh, with her lack of privileges, advantages, you know, all these things, bad things that had happened to her, her mindset was always, how can I help other people? So she became a social worker as soon as she could and basically was like giving back whatever she could give back from that vantage point at an early age. So I, I learned from that, watching that example that we have to, we have to be altruistic. We have to give back. You know, it's not about self orientation. It's about, you know, giving to others. My mom was always somebody who was, you know, she was always somebody who would be an ear and listen to you and give you advice and help you get to where you're going to. My mom was also, she had exceptionally high standards for herself and for her children. And so, you know, basically have high standards. It's okay to have high standards. It's good to have high standards, but you have to help people get to the standard. You know, people are not going to achieve standards on their own. So to meet them where they are and help them grow and help them, help them achieve. And also my mom has tremendous resilience. She went to school for 25 years to get her master's degree and actually got her master's degree before I got a year before I got mine at 45. And so she never quit. She had a dream for herself. She knew what she wanted and she just stuck to it despite moving all over the country and, you know, having kids and all these kind of things. She stuck to it, pursued her dream, never let it go, achieved it. And, and so I think that this is an example for me as well is that if you believe in something, you never stop. You just keep going and you, you pursue your dreams with everything you have. Like I said, incredible woman, great lessons that we can all apply to where yeah. we lead personally and professionally as well. And I guess, where can people find out more about you, about the work that you do, about the yeah, book? Yeah. So um, my website, www.omarlharris.com is the best place to find me. If you're on LinkedIn, Omar L. Harris, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Instagram, omarl.harris. Twitter, Strengths Leader. So, you know, but if you go to omarlharris.com, you will find, you know, basically all my links to everything else to my personal website. And I look forward to interacting with you guys. And, and if I can help in any way, please let me know. And all those details will be in the show notes when the episode absolutely comes out. So definitely tap into you said the great work Omar's doing. He's got lots and lots of experience, not just having the theoretical background, but the practical <laughs> background as well. So it makes it so much more easy. I mean, I know what it is when you go into organizations and you're like, oh, I've done this. So I know what it's like. So you can talk about yeah. those emotions. You can talk about those failures. And that's someone yeah. who's done it. So definitely tap into him. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate you, man. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Omar. I hope you really enjoy that chat. And if you want to find out more about him, all his information is in the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk, which also contains previous guests that you can delve into as well. You can easily follow the show via your favorite app, That's always going to be the best way to make sure you never miss an episode when it's released. I look forward to speaking with you next week on the next episode of Everyday Leadership.